Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Showtime. People pay good money to see this movie. When they go out to a theater, they want cold sodas, hot popcorn, and no monsters in the projection booth. Everyone pretend podcasting isn't boring. Turn it off. This is Mandrian Pace, number one car thief in America. He'll steal anything, anytime, as long as it's insured. Read my horoscope this morning. His front, insurance investigation. His business, stealing cars. And now he's got to fill the biggest contract yet. You're going to deliver over 40 cars to docks by Saturday. That's a sad story. Listen. can lock your car, but if he wants it, it's gone in 60 seconds. Things don't always go as planned, even for a pro. Sometimes when you steal a car, you get more than you bargained for. Holy shit! Hera. Who is it? Police! The whole damn thing's loaded. Fasten your seatbelt for what Carcraft magazine calls the most hair-raising chase scene ever filmed. Hollywood Reporter says it's a thrill a minute. You owe it to your car to see Gone in 60 Seconds. It's Grand Theft Entertainment. Gone in 60 Seconds. Rated PG. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me once again is El Goro. Uh, I should have read my horoscope this morning. Also back in the booth is Mr. Chris Tashu. Eleanor? You mean we have to steal a car named Eleanor? On this special episode, we are looking at Gone in 60 Seconds. Released in 1974, the film was directed, written by, and stars H.B. Halecki, that's what I'm going with, as Mandrian Pace. You heard me. He's an accident investigator by day, maybe, and a car thief by day, too, and by night, I guess. He gets charged with stealing 
48 cars for the unscrupulous Mr. Bilas. Bilas? Lots of names in here, Mike. All of the cars are given female nicknames, and it's the car Eleanor that seems to haunt him as he and his crew get to work filling a very tall order. As with a few films this month, this is a request from one of our Patreon donors. If you want to request a film for us to cover, be sure to visit patreon.com slash projectionbooth, where you can become a donor, and at our projectionist manager or regional manager tiers, you can request a film too. We will be spoiling this one, as well as the sequel and the remakes, so if you haven't seen Gone in 60 Seconds, turn off the podcast and come back after you have. We will still be here. El Goro, when was the first time you saw Gone in 60 Seconds, and what did you think? In terms of the original 74, this was only a very recent watch for me. Coming up, I was much, much more familiar with the uh, Nicolas Cage film. But uh, having watched the original 1974 in preparation for this episode... Goddamn, Halicky was a madman. Just the sheer amount of automotive carnage that is on display in this film. It is such a glorious throwback to the 1970s, where if you wanted to film a car crash, you had no choice but to crash a lot of cars. And it adds such a visceral thrill when you see just the amount of absurd stunt work on display in this film, made even more pronounced when you look into the behind the scenes and realize... Yeah, this movie was made by a bunch of car-stealing maniacs that just decided, let's crash a bunch of cars and put it on film. We'll make a bundle. And Chris, how about yourself? So similarly to the last time I was on car subculture films, not at all my bag. So I'm not super duper well-versed coming into this episode with Gone in 60 Seconds. I saw the remake when it came out, but this was the first time watching it, and... This movie's kind of insane. This is a time and a place where if you wanted cars to crash, you had to crash the cars. And the amount of cars that they talk about using in this film, the amount of 40-minute chase scene in this film, it's a testament to the technical prowess of someone who, for all intents and purposes, bootstrapped the shit out of this original movie. I had no idea that Haleki actually was a car thief until I was watching an interview with Ron Moore, and he was like, Oh, yeah. Yeah, he stole a bunch of cars to finance the film. <laughs> I've watched that same interview, and that's why I, I wanted to append a allegedly, because we're only getting it from him that he was a car thief. But I'd like to believe that Halicky was just financing the entire film by ripping off a lot of cars. Well, he seems to know what he's talking about in the uh, voiceover where we're hearing all about these, uh, the opening thievery that's going on. But I can't remember when I saw this one the first time I Definitely saw it when I was doing a piece for Cashiers de Cinemart all about vehicular mayhem. I always like a good coast-to-coast race movie, so Cannonball Run, Death Race 2000, those kind of things. I really like uh, Vanishing Point, and I want to say that there are a couple nods to Vanishing Point in Gone in 60 Seconds, and I did check to see which one was first. The whole idea of the sunglasses across the front dash is something that I remember from Vanishing Point. And I, of course, I'm sure Tarantino ripped it off for like Death Proof or something. But you also get those sunglasses here. And you also get a DJ character inside of Gone in 60 Seconds, which Cleavon Little played in Vanishing Point. This guy, not as charismatic as Cleavon Little, 
And really, the whole cast, very, very, very amateur. Though I'd say Hilliki does a pretty good job, but they do a really smart thing by not having a lot of people speaking on camera so that, one, you don't have to record live sound while you're doing stuff, and two, you can coach the hell out of their performances when they're doing their voiceovers, because, like I said, not really acting in this film. Lots of ADR. Like, so much so that within the first 10-15 minutes of the movie being on, I kind of knew how they were going to be doing a lot of what they were doing, because they made it very obvious that it's going to be a lot of ADR in the studio, perfect audio quality. Halicki is hiring his friends to make this film, and, like, people that he knows. Like you said, these aren't professionally trained actors, it shows, but it doesn't show as much as other films that I've seen where... You learn when you read about it more, oh, this is, you know, friends of the director or something to that effect. The, you know, they're not asked to do much, which is fine. Yeah, I mean, when I first uh, got into it, it definitely that sort of documentary realism was very, very pronounced, certainly during the sequence where they were stripping down their car, the car and laying out how they you know, would swap out the VIN numbers of a wreck with one they just stole. And what struck me was the naturalism to the dialogue, the stuttering, the pauses. It felt very improvised. And it wasn't until later that I found out, yeah, it was entirely improvised. There was no script for this film. There was basically prompt. And then people would kind of figure it out. Uh, from what I heard, the editor had some issues trying to assemble the thing because trying to get Halicky to explain, all right, this happens, this happens, this happens. A lot of times Halicky would just kind of draw him a picture. It's like, okay, this is what we did on the day. Put it together. Good luck. So the fact that it comes together as well as it does is pretty remarkable. I had only ever seen this on VHS until I rewatched it for the show. And my God, the quality of the blu-ray is just stunning looks amazing but that music is horrific i was so pissed because i was like no 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 no! i want the original soundtrack and i want this beautiful picture luckily there are fan editors out there who have done exactly what i was hoping for original credits we don't see halicki's widow spoiler alert <laughs> yeah, we'll get into that. <laughs> spoiler alert for later on in this episode. The film actually looks really good, and I was very into the movie. They play to their strengths. The whole use of the ADR is a very smart thing to do. Having a 40-minute car chase where really we do get some cutaways and we get some dialogue during that, so that's good. But really, so much of that is just played out with music, sound effects, and the incredible visuals of this guy just tearing ass around town on this massive chase. It's a, a fantastic way to make this movie stand out. Well, and it's almost what the, the film's entire format is leading up to that chase, so much so that when the chase is over, so is the film. I mean, the film ends at the end of the chase. I miss this idea in film that, like, you have this one big thing that the movie is known for. And obviously, that is because of the kind of financial limitations of the film and the, the the acting limitations of the film. But I miss these films where there's like, this is the film that has a 40-minute chase in it. And that's like the whole thing. And it's I miss that because when I was you know reading about it before I sat down to watch it, I was like, there's a 40-minute chase scene in this movie. I can't wait. And it delivers almost so much that it kind of overshadows the kind of smaller issues that the movie does have. 
Certainly. And I will say that that particular gimmick to that point has arisen relatively recently. I know I watched a movie just a couple months ago that was uh, done by Taksakaguchi, Crazy Samurai Musashi, which the entire gimmick of the film is, we here's your intro, and then we're going to do basically a nine, 90-minute uninterrupted one-cut fight scene. So those kind of gimmick films, they do still kind of exist, and uh, but uh, to your point, not to the same level of spectacle and legacy see that what got established with uh, Gone in 60 Seconds, that it still has the record, right, for the longest car chase? I think it does, and it... With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Held a record for a little while of the most cars wrecked. I think he outdid it himself with deadline auto theft. But then I want to say... It was either that or the the junk man. I think I read the junk man had like 250 cars that were crashed in that one. And then I don't know if that record still stands or if something like a Blues Brothers might have taken it away. Lord knows with the amount of cars they crashed in Blues Brothers 2000, that's got to be oh, close. Oh, God, yeah. I know that they set that out for themselves to make another record with that one. I do miss this gimmick thing, though, like you said, El Goro, because, I mean, it, obviously it was at a time and place where they were trying to get people into the theaters. And I genuinely wonder if we may see things like this now, with like a reason to go back to the movies to see this 40-minute chase on screen. Thinking of gimmick films, recent ones, people aren't talking about, and I doubt they will be talking about, Hardcore Henry another decade from now. But that's also another gimmick movie. Or, um, it's not Dunkirk's not a gimmick movie, but what's the other one? The 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 war movie that was all one take. Oh, 1918. Like, the car thing? Like, I, I mean, it's Fast and the Furious, and I don't think they're doing a lot of those car crashes. I could be wrong, but I get the distinct feeling... If they're flying out of helicopters in in cars, they're probably not real cars. At least not all of them. Probably not. And again, the only, I think the only reason that Halicki was able to get away with the kind of stuff that he did is the fact that he did do this as an independent film. Is the fact that the idea of permits or proper safety precautions or insurance were so incredibly foreign to this production that if they he'd attempted to do this kind of thing in a traditional studio picture, I don't think he would have been able to go as far as he did. Yeah, it would have been insane. And certainly today, there's no way they would have been able to get away with the kind of stuff they were doing in this film for real. But the fact that he shot at Gorilla, the fact that he pretty much self-financed this movie, and by a dint of that, got to keep all of the uh, receipts of this movie. I mean, it's insane, but it's also terribly inspired, the fact that he just had that momentum that carried him through making this film. We talk about independent filmmaking and filmmakers who don't feel like they could just go out and make a movie. And obviously, now that's not really the case with the advent of technology. Everybody has a, I mean, we, everybody always says everybody has a cell phone. And it, it kind of is true. I mean, obviously, there's so much more to it than just you have a cell phone. If everybody had a cell phone, everybody would be making movies, and they're not, at least not competent films. But in the 70s, that wasn't the case. I can't imagine making this film now, but I really can't imagine making this film when they made it. I can't. 
aside, the technical aspect of this film is beyond impressive to the point where I, I look at other filmmakers at the time making similar films. I'm like, look at what this guy did on this budget. Like, what is your excuse? It's a curious confluence of the dedication that Halicki had towards the project and the pure the pure technical skills that he had to pull it off. I mean, when you look at his pedigree in cars, the fact that he had owned his first auto shop when he was 17, this was a world that he intimately knew. And the fact that, you know, he was willing to put his own life at risk at, to achieve a lot of the stuff in this to uh, ultimately tragic results as he got later on in his life. But even gone in 60 seconds, he didn't walk away completely. Completely unscathed from this film. Yeah, this has kind of like a Legend of Boggy Creek. We're going to just make use of what we have type of feel to it. When the guys are trying to rip off the one car and there's a tiger in the back seat, I'm just like, okay, he must have known somebody who has exotic pets and, <laughs> and said, hey, can I borrow a tiger for a little bit? And that's going to be the gag of it. Yeah, I, I really appreciate the hard work that they put in on this, and it definitely pays off. And like I said, I wish that it didn't have that horrible new music to it, because there are a lot of scenes where there's not a ton of dialogue, so that music just distracts me. And it's not like it's bad. It's not like it's... It's it's just so vanilla that I'm just like, okay, this sounds like, you know, generic rock album 101 type thing. I'm like, no, no, I want a little bit more flavor to this because the film itself has so much flavor. I want that music to have the flavor as well. What was included in the original soundtrack? Because I'm not familiar with the earlier cuts of the film. It felt more appropriate to the era that it was being made. It felt much more 1974. It was a little harder rock type of thing. And this just felt like... It wasn't offensive. It just went along with the, the picture, but it didn't feel like it had that soul to it. Speaking of editing, before we kind of go more into the movie, unless the technical stuff, as someone who the three of us edits a lot of stuff, either video or audio, I can't imagine and listening to, you know, reading about Warner E. Layton talk about like what Halicki gave him. The script is not just for shooting. The script is also for editing. <laughs> and it is, it's horrifying. I can't imagine being in Warner E. Layton's shoes, coming into this project and going, what the fuck do you want me to do? <laughs> you, you give me nothing. You, you, you give me, uh, on the commentary, he talks about, um, you know, the, the construction, uh, scene and he's just like, we went around it twice. There you go. That's what happened. And it's like, what the actual, like, what the fuck? Like, it doesn't happen like this anywhere but in a film that's being starred, written, produced, stunt worked by this one guy who is so adamant about what he knows he wants that it does end up working. But, I mean, nine times out of ten, a film like this is just a complete and utter failure and probably never even gets rewatched as much as this does. And it sure as hell doesn't have a remake made of it 30 years later. That's for sure. Well, you never know. In 30 years, we might be watching Fateful Findings or Double Down or, or Double Take or Knives I Am too. Here Now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's going to be a huge Breen resurgence, the Breenaissance, as it were. Oh, God. <laughs> I don't want to live in a world where Breen ends up in the Criterion Collection of the future. I'm surprised that Gone in 60 Seconds, the remake, hasn't ended up in there. I'm kind of surprised Gone in 60 Seconds, the original, hasn't ended up anywhere. Other than, what, just Blu-ray, right? 
it feels like this film is really well known among motorheads, but right. not necessarily among the rest of the population. Like it was a big surprise to a lot of people when the 2000 movie came out and people were saying that it was a remake. And it's like, what? It's a remake? What? I've never heard of this other film before. And I wonder if part of it might be the actual Hallecky family. I've heard ver- various accounts of how litigious they've been over the years, particularly if anybody has the audacity to make a car called Eleanor. They're quick with the lawsuits and that. So I wonder if perhaps some of the lack of the film kind of being out there is because they're putting it out themselves. And so perhaps not licensing it out like they could if it was, you know, part of a catalog that got picked up by a, a boutique label or what have you. Denise Shikari and Haliki doesn't own Mustang <laughs> or anything. She's just, you know, using the name Eleanor, licensing the name of that kind of Mustang, which in and of itself is very strange. Getting litigious uh, about a car that you never made, but you're, you're kind of, it's custom. And in 2008, she won a case against Shelby, Carol Shelby, as in Shelby Mustang. <laughs> so, so litigious works, I guess, sometimes. Yeah. Sure. I, but it's, when I was reading kind of like the whole litigious nature behind the Eleanor name, it just struck me as very strange because it's just the name of a custom Mustang, but they're not claiming ownership of Mustang at all. It's very odd, and it's very... I, I guess that's probably why we never saw anything... Well, there's more reasons than that, but that's probably... We haven't seen anything else, to your to your point, Mike, and El Goro. It is amazing to look at the credits of the film, because I think HB was one of... Was it like 13 children? And you see the Halicky name, not necessarily in the credits that... You know, we see on the on screen, um, and I'm talking about the end credits versus the beginning credits, which only have one thing, which is starring Eleanor. But in the <laughs> the end credits, you get a little bit, and then on IMDb, you get a lot more. There are so many people with the last name Palicky, and, <laughs> and it's like uh, Frank, John, Nancy, Rudy. You know, it just goes on and on. It's like, wow, okay, they definitely put the uh, family to work in here. Well, yeah, I mean, if you have 13 or your uh, 12 brothers and sisters, and apparently it's a family full of motorheads from what uh, I was hearing from that Rondi Moore uh, discussion, they still exist as uh, Hallecky towing in in the part of New York where they grew up. So it's basically a family full of motorheads. Put them all in the movie. Put them all to work. Well, hey, I mean, you know, the the big Polish family aspect of this film bleeds into the movie a couple times in like a very interesting way because they, I, I think they mention not once, not twice, at least three times somebody gets called just a Polak outright. I am not a Polak. People from Poland are Poles. They are not Polaks. And then they have a bunch of Polish names kind of thrown in there as well. It is so funny. So I, my stepdad actually worked at a junkyard that was owned by a Polish family because Wyandotte, Michigan has a ton of Polish people in it. And these three brothers own this junkyard. And so to hear somebody in this film call somebody else Stash, that was like the nickname. You would just call people Stash all the time. And then even to hear them talk about, I think they say like a dupa at one point, I was just just like, oh yeah, your, your butt, you know, you just call your butt your dupa. And it just, that is ingrained in me. That's part of my vocabulary. So when I'm hearing Stash and Polak and Dupa and all this, I'm just like, oh, okay, yeah, these, these guys must really be Polish. This is great. 
They call him something other than Madrian Pace in the film. Do they call him Viznicky? Vinicky at some point? Somebody calls him something that's not his name. And it's like Vinicky or Vinicky, but they never mention it or like, they just kind of hang a hat on it. They're like, okay. I don't remember that, but, but that that does, in keeping with a lot of how the script kind of came around, that, you know, largely improvised as it is, but it gives it all kind of a, this lived-in uh, feeling. You know, the, that little bit of the Polish slang thrown in, the allusions to things that have nothing to do with the plot of the film, but it nevertheless, it helps it feel very real. And I know that's not the main emphasis of the story. The main emphasis is the car chases, is the thefts, but that little, the little bits, the little interstitial stuff around it not the greatest performances with the lucky land slots you can get lucky just about anywhere this is your captain speaking uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky no no nothing like that it's just these cash prizes add up quick so i suggest you sit back keep your tray table upright and start getting lucky play for free at luckylandslots.com are you feeling lucky no purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. But it still helped really build a world that uh, it's certainly not to the same level as the stunts, but it was still interesting to see that at play. I don't know. Uh, then mayor of Carson, California, Sack Yamamoto is a great actor. He, def- he definitely doesn't look like he has no idea what to do in front of a camera. It's it, that that scene stands out for me because I was like, okay, I have to look up if Sack Yamamoto was the actual mayor. Okay, yeah, he was very obvious because all of a sudden he he just like launches into like what I would assume to be the way an actual mayor talks. Like it's great for our city and stuff. It's like, oh Jesus. I forget which film it was. I really wish I could remember, but they were t- the director was talking about it. The easiest way to get uh, cops to help out on the film if you don't have a permit is to offer them a role in the film because they will w- be willing to drop everything to help you out. And I guess that's true of mayors of Carson City. <laughs> I want to know what their connection with Lyle Wagoner is because when he brought up Lyle Wagoner, I was like – Wait, Lyle Wagoner from the Carol Burnett show? And then it's this whole thing of how they're stealing Lyle Wagoner's car. He's, his is one of the 48 cars that they had to steal. And I'm just like, you can just say Lyle Wagoner's name and that's okay. <laughs> I guess so. All right. I mean, between that and the uh, the prominence of Hoyt Axton and and uh, the Junk Man, oh, there's a, a curious amount of uh, raising up of kind of fringe character actors of the 1970s and 80s. Yeah, this is pre-Gremlins, Hoyt Axton. I know. <laughs> <laughs> That's the thing that struck me with the Junk Man as well. We ended up with two uh, Joe Dante alums because uh, Christopher Stone was in that movie too, and he was later on in uh, Howling. I kept being reminded of the sabotage video by the Beastie Boys, especially yes. when he would put on that gray wig, Mandarin. Uh He looked like Sir Stuart Wallace so much for me. 
And I love the payoff of it too. The uh, the mistaken identity with the manager of the car wash taking the fall for him at the end. It's like, oh god, this is too perfect. That's my favorite scene in the entire movie is when he so casually takes this beaten ass car and just dumps it off and then grabs the other car and just dips. Again, it shows the kind of El Goro and Mike, you guys were talking about how Licky probably stole cars. To me, that scene felt a lot more uh, natural. <laughs> it's like, all right, <laughs> this is the, I mean, I mean, look, they, they have a bunch of cons, right? That's the way it works. They know all the cons and they know how to pull all of them off. How do you know the cons? Well, it's because you're a con man. That's the most ingenious thing I've ever seen. It's just so smart and it's so an interesting way to end the film because ultimately it it ends up being the kind of the climax, I guess the post-climax epilogue of the film. But it's so funny because it's just so quiet given the rest of everything that happened. He just dumps the car off, gets out, goes, gets the other one and leaves. It's just, it's it's hilarious. But at the same time, it kind of cuts to the core of what this movie is about, which is one guy who knew how to steal cars Filming him stealing people's cars. Mm-hmm. Allegedly. <laughs> allegedly. Uh, Again, the Halicky family is, is rather litigious, so we got to throw that allegedly out there. <laughs> allegedly. Allegedly. <laughs> the editing of that last scene that you're talking about when he takes the car and says, uh, yeah, yeah, go ahead and wash this for me. And they put it in the car wash. You never actually get to see it come out of the building. There's the, the person, the woman that faints. And yeah. the shot is inside of the car wash. It's not outside of the car wash. So this thing, you know, you're talking about the editing. It is just kind of held together by hope. The shot that should be there of the car rolling out and you see it come out of the car wash, that's not there. So, so we're just, we're going to pretend that somehow the woman saw the car inside of the car wash, but it's all right. Warner E. Layton made it work. I mean, he... The editor makes it work. Like, I want to give so much credit to the editor on this film because without him, I don't think this film would have been nearly as good as it is. No, whatsoever. No. How much time do you think they spent shooting those three guys in the back of that Cadillac who are just like jive talking the whole time? It felt like any time there was a just a, a, a any sort of need for a break or a cutaway, we're going to cut to those guys. I'm sure there's about three hours of them just cr- kind of cruising around, and then they just... That's what it feels like. Pick the best, and then ADR the rest. <laughs> oh, man. And I kept waiting. I was like, okay, they set up these guys. They're driving in this car. When is it going to pay off? And then they would cut back to him again. I cut back to him again. I'm just like, what is going on with these guys? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I kept expecting them to to go into that very 70s sort of nihilism and have them be responsible for him failing to deliver the, the car after he smoothly swapped out the fourth Eleanor and, you know, everything's going his way. And then these, you know, these kind of clowns are just going to do something that's going to ruin it all. You know, it'd be a very 70s ending. Nope, that does not happen. Their car breaks down. Man- Mandrian Pace and ends up looking like the coolest guy ever as he cruises cr- off into the sunset. That because damn it, that's the movie that Toby Hallecky is going to make. And you know what? I will say that without a doubt, to uh, HB Toby Hallecky. I mean, he looks like the smoothest operator. Oh, in this yeah. movie. It does help that everybody else in this movie is kind of you know flying by the seat of their pants because they're just like, you put a camera in front of me and expect me to do what now? 
he comes off as the smoothest because he's a smooth dude. I mean, you see it in the sequel and in Junkman, so it's not a one-and-done scenario. But man, it's a shame what ended up happening to him in so many ways. Because we all know if he had continued to have been around, the stakes would have been amplified tenfold. Probably, again, something probably would have happened to him and he probably would have died, unfortunately. Spoilers, I guess. Not really a spoiler. It's a real person's life, but... Something still probably would have happened to him, but it, just thinking about all the things that we've missed out on by not having him around because of how good this is, this is such a good starting point that I really wish and wonder how much further he really could have gone with all of this kind of being the guy who knows how to shoot a car chase and a car movie. Yeah, I don't know. I will say, though, in terms of him looking cool, I mean, that goes down to his physical appearance, though I did spend a fair bit of the movie thinking he looked a lot like William Ostrander from Christine, you know, the the bully Buddy Repperton. Yeah, he's like subpar uh, John Travolta. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, it, was, it was all in the hair, I think. I can yeah, see when that. he has the big hair, he looks like John Travolta. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he, he looked a little Marjo Gortner to me at times. I can see that, yeah. But but to be fair, the one thing that I kept thinking of, because we've all kind of mentioned, Mike, you mentioned sabotage, and this is going to be me ruining any credibility that I have on this podcast. He looks like Ben Stiller in Starsky and Hutch when he pretends <laughs> to look like a crazy person. Yes. And in this movie, it's identical. It's it's like shockingly identical. And I, I think it's a coincidence. But he has the sideburns and the hair and the glasses. And all I could think was he just looks like that character that Ben Stiller's playing in Starsky and Hutch. Again, completely no credibility now on this podcast. I will go back to the idiot corner. But it again, it looks so it looks so similar. It's just it, it cracked me up every time I saw it. Excuse me. Hi. You're Casey Casey. You're unbelievable. Oh, thank you. Thank you very much. No, 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 no. Seriously, I'm telling you. You blow me away. Well, it's really nice of you to No, 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 no. I'm telling you what you do. It's really amazing. It's fabulous. Yes, well, can we get... No, 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 no. I'm telling you. I'm telling you. What you do, I really get it. I get what's going on with you. It's amazing. Really. Great stuff. Yes. No, 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 no. no. Really. Do me a favor. Say, uh, coming in this week at number one is Lionel Richie. who's stuck on you. Huh? No, I really don't think I can do no, that. No, no, no. Come on. Do it. Seriously, do it. Come on. Do it. Coming in at number one this week is Lionel Richie was stuck on you. <laughs> That's great. You get this at home all the time, right? That's great. All right, do Shaggy from Scooby-Doo. Come on. Dude, I will allow it. I had a job where, that's, where that version of Starsky and Hutch was played at least five times a week. So I'm intimately familiar with that film. So you, you, th that connection just popped me. Well done. I, and look, again, I, I, you know, I'm glad that you're here to defend me because otherwise Mike would have thrown me off the podcast. A Todd Phillips move. Hey, no, I use that gif of Stiller in that kind of crazy outfit where he's going, do, do it. it. Do it. Yeah, I use that do all it. the time. <laughs> I mean, look. That movie has its moments, but that 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 look that he has in this movie and, and in and Ben Stiller in that movie, it's the same. And I just kept laughing. It's it's such a unique look, but he pulls it off even when he looks like a, a crazy man, not with his giant uh, glorious afro. Well, you talked about the whole idea of like having this gimmick of the forty minute car chase. You look back at some of the greatest films from the seventies and eighties, and it's just like, oh yeah, that um, amazing car stunt in The Man with the Golden Gun, or Bullet, or The French Connection, or the La Casse, or just so many things. It's like, I can't think of a, you know, like a real car chase, like B 
because I, I know that digital technology has taken over things. So the last real buckle yourselves in, this is going to be one hell of a car chase. That was Ronin. And that was a long fucking time ago. Like, I don't even look at the Fast and the Furious movies as being real because they feel like cartoons. Well, it's because they have effectively become cartoons. On a recent episode of the Culture Cast, I was trying to workshop how they could get the cars to space at this point and it be realistic, but it at the same time do what they do with Tom Cruise because Tom Cruise is an also equally insane person and not for the reasons that everyone is assuming I'm talking about. Tom Cruise is very much Halicki-esque in his like refusal to not be the one doing the stunts. He wants to be the stuntman and the actor, which you know what? If there's a studio willing to insure this guy for doing it, be my guest. But to your point, Mike, like they're the Fast and the Furious movies aren't car movies. They're action movies now. They're spy movies. They're essentially James Bond, but with more people. I, it's it's that kind of it's become so big and CGI filled that when they don't do the CGI, it looks weird. Chris, it's all about family. Okay, yeah, when we get to the remake, we're gonna talk all about it. I'm sure because it's oh, yeah. it if it, it felt like it felt like Deep Impact and Armageddon, but the dime store versions of those it, that kind of going back and forth thinking about Fast and Furious and the Gone in sixty seconds remake, very Deep Impact Armageddon. Just watching both of them and being like, okay, this is <laughs> family, guys. Oh God, at least Gone with sixty seconds stopped. Fast and Furious kept going with it for, what, nine more movies now? So Yeah, I think they're sitting on the ninth one, aren't they? Yeah, yeah, it was supposed to come out last year. And I think that there are some sh- scenes where they're chasing an airplane in a rocket car, so they will be going out into space very soon. I hope so. Fingers crossed. Considering with the spinoff movie Hobbs and Shaw, they've established they live in a world with cyborgs. You know, nothing really, it, it, nothing would surprise me at this point. Look at me. I'm Black Superman. You know what? And I'm on board for it because it's a level of cra- crazy ass spectacle that it is, is its own inherent momentum. And while I can appreciate Gone in 60 Seconds for just the ballsiness of it, those that followed in the wake, just the, the insanity that they bring to the table. It's a different flavor, but I can still appreciate the possibly coke filled uh, fueled intensity that underwrites both of those. I don't think there's a maybe with this film. Lots of cocaine. Lots of lots of marching powder was involved in this film. I don't even think they were doing cocaine. I think they were just doing trucker speed. It's like, all right, let's do this. <laughs> I do like how that's the bridge too far is when they steal the car that has the drugs in it. <laughs> And it's like, we don't want to touch heroin. Yeah. Well, it's it, it's all in keeping with his morality. The fact that all the cars he steals have to be insured, you know, as if that's that's just a magic wand that makes everything OK. And, you know, the line that he sings, well, I'm a car thief, but I'm not a drug dealer because I'm sophisticated. It's like any of those mob movies. I was going to say, yeah, the Godfather. <laughs> yeah. You know, they, they try to be moral in anything like this, and but they, they won't, you know, sell drugs because that's a, th- a bridge too far. Motherfucker, you just cut a guy's a horse's head off and put it in bed with him but no you won't tell drugs because that's the bad shit 
That's the line. In Goodfellas, they don't cross it. I mean, that's the whole subplot of Goodfellas is don't do drugs. It's, it's what's, what's, what I, what I did, the, like, and I know this is skipping to the remake, but we're talking about this scene in the original. The, the remake did do something smart and they mentioned why it was such a big deal that he shouldn't have taken that car. He goes, Hey, you, that, this car is left out for a reason. This is a drop spot for people to pick up and drop drugs and money. So you don't just fucking steal the car. And they uh, it was weird to me that they didn't mention it in the original because I would have thought that they the remake would have just been copying that whole su- oh, you know, whole cloth from the original and they didn't and it kind of makes sense um and it's it, it makes more sense than just like I don't sell drugs. Like why not? What do you care? Like really, what do you care? But like you're impringing on other people's business and taking their money and don't want to piss them off. I get that 100%. Well, the thing I liked about the original, though, is that the one guy who's like, hey, wait, this is a whole windfall. We are rich now. We don't even have to worry about these stupid cars. That he's basically the Judas character and turn and, and lets them know where the Eleanor car is and where he's going to be and screws over Haliki, Toby, um, or Mandrian, uh in this thing so that we actually have a villain in the movie that isn't you know, some sort of comic book uh, Christopher Eccleston character. What, you didn't like the carpenter? I get angry about <laughs> furniture! Don't break my stool! That's your thing, isn't it? A year ago, we talked about a movie called Transylvania 65000, and it had the one of the most hilarious production credits of all time, which is produced by the Dow Chemical Company. Oh, um, <laughs> I would wager, though, that this film's distributed by title is better than that. Distributed by H.B. Halicki Junkyard and Mercantile Company. <laughs> that, my friends, that is that is an accomplishment that your junkyard business helped to distribute your film. But it was possible in those days, which is wild, that you get in with the right distributor who's got a lock on the drive-in circuit, and this is a license to print money. Money it did. I mean, again, you look at the budget versus the box office, if you can trust any of those numbers, because Hollywood accounting is so terribly full of shit. But, I mean, this was undeniably a hugely profitable film, and Halicki got to essentially pocket all of it because he directed it, he wrote it, he produced it, he distributed it, he starred in it. And I'm sure a fair bit of the proceeds went to paying for his medical bills, what with him compressing most of the discs in his spine due to that little jump he did. good lord. Ten vertebrae in his spine. Oh, God. Damn. It's just like if Hal Needham didn't need to worry about insurance, he would make movies like this. When I read that thing about the vertebrae, I physically felt ill. Yeah. Yeah. Because, because like, you see that scene and the you assume <laughs> that they're doing this in a way, given the way things are done now, given how big of a deal it is when a stunt woman or stunt man gets murdered or murdered, killed on set by accident. Murdered is not a thing that happens, but killed on set by accident. It's like a big deal now. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you hear about it in the trades and everything else. But like this, this guy's putting his body on the line. It says he walked with a limp after, but I couldn't tell. Did he walk with a permanent limp? That's what it seemed to be for me. They said he never really walked the same way afterwards. Jesus Ugh. Christ. Ugh. But it didn't stop him from making a series of more movies. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I was about to say. I don't need to it walk didn't... in order to drive. Let's do this. Right. Exactly. The car is my legs. Well, speaking of that, let's go ahead and take a break, and we'll be right back after these brief messages. 
Dark Destinations is a travelogue podcast unlike any other. Cities and towns distinguished by their oddity and the fact that they don't exist. Join us at Dark Destinations, where we explore the most infamous locations to be found in fiction. From Arkham to Zyera and every point in between, we risk life, limb, and our sanity for your listening pleasure. Dark Destinations can be found at fathermalone.com and on iTunes. It's not easy having a good time. And it's not cheap, either. Every week, the Projection Booth brings you a new show, possibly even two, focusing on all genres of cinema. If you've sat through the seven-hour Conan episode, the six-hour Star Wars episode, or even the hour-long Superb Man episode, you know that Mike and his co-host put forth a lot of work into researching the movies, tracking down the interview subjects, and putting together one of the best podcasts on the internet. Now, I'm asking you if you can repay all that hard work by giving back to the projection booth. The show has a Patreon fundraiser at Patreon. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash projection booth. You can donate as little as a dollar a month. That's $12 a year. At least 50 great shows and two terrible ones. That's the price of two matinee tickets. Now isn't the projection booth worth it? Once again, that's patreon.com slash projection booth. Donate today. It's the right thing to do. I'm Chris Cooling from Forgotten TV, and you're listening to The Projection Booth, the ultimate movie podcast. From the maker of Gone in 60 Seconds, the chase thriller of the 70s, comes the chase thriller of the 80s, The Junk Man. From junk cars to movie stars, Harlan Hollis is the American dream, worth millions, and now someone wants it all. Yeah, the junk man lives with his life on the line, they're trying to kill him and he's running out of time. He loves his cars and he loves his child, he's a millionaire and born too wild. To get into the movie making business, he was in the auto junk business, and now he collects stuff. Fans from around the world gather here to pay tribute to a great American legend, the brilliant star of East of Eden, Giant, and the classic Rebel Without a Cause. Harlan B. Hollis will hereafter be referred to only as the target. Deadly assassins with their aircraft and speeding cars close in for the kill. He did his own stuff in his movies, but this time he's driving for his life. The Junkman brings you intense high-speed action. Witness the destruction of over 150 vehicles in some of the most daring airplane car and blip stunts ever filmed. Yeah, the junk man drives like a bat out of hell. His dreams come true like a ring and a bell. The bombs and the bullets are coming his way, and his money won't help him get away today. It's time to put the fun back in the theater with entertainment for the entire family. The junk man, two years in the making. The chase thriller of the 80s. Rated PG. Junk man. All right, we are back, and we were talking about gone in 60 seconds and 
Yeah, we were talking about how the profitability of the first movie really helped spawn kind of a mini empire, because this wasn't just one film. There were two and a half movies after this, we'll say, The Junkman, Deadline Auto Theft, and then Gone in 60 Seconds 2, which unfortunately was cut short by the death of its star-slash-director-slash-writer-slash-everything, H.B. Halicki. But The Junkman is hilarious because Halicki is kind of playing himself. There's just like this whole thing of there's this guy who had a junkyard and he he was so young when he had it. It's like his family photo album is what we're looking at for the beginning of The Junkman when we're seeing an expose on the, our main character and how successful he was after the first movie that he just did. And even just the fact that they established in the world that he had previously made Gone in 60 Seconds, and they had the promotional material for that, and the fact that he was making another movie that ended up being the opening sequence in the follow-up, Deadline Auto Theft. And The Junkman, it's this interesting sort of, uh, it's him, you know, mythologizing himself. Yeah, oh it's God, like, yes. well, last time I'm, I was playing a character, this time I'm going to play another character named Harlan B. Hollis. Yeah, that's way different than H.B. Be Hallecky. <laughs> well, and when you give yourself a name and gone in sixty seconds, like M- Mandrian Pace, I mean, your own name is not nearly as exciting as that. So, I guess not. And there's this whole thing about him going down to this James Dean festival. So it's it's one of these things where we can shoot stuff at the James Dean festival and work it into our movie. So again, very smart the way that he's doing this. So he doesn't necessarily need to have that thick of a plot because he's got all of this stuff that he can cut to and talk about with lucky landslots you can get lucky just about anywhere dearly beloved we are gathered here today to has anyone seen the bride and groom sorry sorry we're here we were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time no lucky land casino with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry in that case i pronounce you lucky Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. James Dean and have all of these natural people there just talking about James Dean and, oh, I was the last guy that saw him alive and I did this and I did that. So it's like a mini documentary sitting in the middle of this other film. This film, which stars Hoyt Axton, and I was super excited to see him, and I was super excited to see Freddie Boom Boom Cannon in the credits as well. But I have to think that, uh, you know, speaking of elements that he's taken from real life, the fact that it's kind of presented, and again, the for a film ostensibly as simple as The Junk Man is, when you start digging into the actual motivations and the quote-unquote plot, things start kind of breaking down quick. I mean, this is really this is really just an excuse to see more car crashes, and God love it for it. But just the fact that it's kind of presented that it's somebody within his own team that's, you know, trying to uh, bump him off in order to take his money. Do you think it's true to life that, you know, maybe <laughs> that he legitimately felt people that were close to him were trying to rip off his money, the money he made off of Gone in 60 Seconds, and this was kind of his way of getting back at them by turning them into villains in his next movie? I mean, given how much money he probably made on Gone in 60 Seconds, I I would probably think it's rather close to reality, wouldn't you? He made a couple million and then some, probably? Sure. They claim it made $40 million, but... Hollywood accounting. Who knows? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but I, I, I would lean into the 
Uh, similar to Gone in 60 Seconds, art imitating life is probably better, given how, you know, he's a car car thief in the first movie. Maybe in the second movie, he is feeling like people are kind of getting at him. Wouldn't be surprised. Well, and this time they amp it up. They've got airplane stunts. I love how in the first movie they show the Goodyear blimp, and in this one they actually have a guy that runs the Goodyear blimp. I was just like, okay, this is kind of cool. But that hit squad, the hit squad is so funny to me because they are just the most ragtag, strange team. Like you've got the ginger guy, you've got the middle-aged lady with the overly large glasses. (laughs) And I'm just like, (laughs) this is your deadly Viper squad here that you've got. Hey, it works for 1982, I guess. It sure did. It sure did. (laughs) And once again, distributed by HB Halicki Junkyard. Keep it in keep it in the family. Keep it even, in the family. Even though you don't trust him. And then he actually even comes back for uh Deadline Auto Theft as the same character. So it's kind of it's weird. It's like the original movie almost an offshoot movie and then the sequel with the same character and then he tried to redo the first movie with Gone in 60 Seconds 2 which unfortunately the Ron Moore story. So Ron Moore Famous for Star Trek The Next Generation, and what else did he do? Battlestar Galactica. I can't remember what all else, but he, you know, had a, he's a big name in the sci fi community, not necessarily a big name in the auto thriller category, but he was there trying to write the script for Gone in 60 Seconds 2. And it's just, it's a little bit more than sour grapes when he talks about how Haliki died, and he's just like, well, karma i was like whoa (laughs) (laughs) but you know what the the way he described this the what happened on that the fact that the sheer lack of precautions that were taken in the stunts oh yeah it sounds like they were idiots oh yeah i mean again for the benefit of the listeners essentially it was a planned stunt where they were going to drop a tremendously high water tower on a bunch of cars in a parking lot big explosion big thing Now, instead of actually hiring out professional engineers to rig this uh, water tower to collapse, they just decided, eh, we know some welders. Why don't we just knock off one of the legs in the thing? Then if we run into it, we can just knock it right over. It's fine. We can secure it up with safety lines. It's good. Except when one of those safety lines happens to snap, causing the thing to fall over early, then knocking over some telephone poles that it otherwise wouldn't have hit, except they decided to re-rig up some electrical lines separating them, thus knocking over the telephone lines and only hitting one person with those telephone poles, Mr. Toby Hallecky himself. Fucking telephone pole just bashing you right in the head. That is some universal karmic shit right there. It's it's hard. I'm not a fan of I'm not a fan of the notion of travels millions of miles throughout the universe to come and kill you. It's like you you made all these things. (laughs) I mean, I'm not going to blame him. But at the same time, you got to take precautions on these fucking movie sets, man. I mean, it's not a it's not a joke. Yeah. You know, I mean, look at something like as much as I didn't like Cursed Films, that final episode of Cursed Films about the Twilight Zone film, the John Landau thing on that one. Landis, excuse me, John Landis. I, I would like to forget Max Landis, too. So maybe we could scrub that out of my fucking brain. But John Landis's lack of preparation there has always made me very frustrated when I hear about stuff like this happening because it feels like it's just all one big problem. Just like you can't just do things in movies as much fun as it might be, as much as it might sound like the right thing to do. 
you could just die and get hit by a telephone pole. <laughs> like it's it's that simple. Unfortunately, the only silver lining and this is going to sound incredibly morbid. The only silver lining is the fact that the only person who died in that incident was Halicky himself, because this was ultimately the result of his poor planning. And we can talk about how they don't really make movies like this anymore. We can talk about the huge spectacle that went into Gone in 60 Seconds. But we do have to acknowledge that the reason it does look the way it does is because it was tremendously dangerous and probably a, a lot stupid the way they shot it. They happened to get, get lucky, but eventually the luck runs out. And, you know, you can talk about the insurance, you can talk about the change in the industry. A lot of those changes were the result of stuff like this. And I would much rather have, you know, boring films than a pile of dead stuntmen. Now, we just talked a couple of weeks ago about Hard Boiled and the idea of the Hong Kong stuntmen. Yes, they are highly valued and they get paid in a different way than stuntmen over here. You know, they are taken care of throughout the year. But yeah, the safety precautions just weren't there for them. And that's mm -hmm. one of those things. Like you go into a new film market and people are just like, yeah, sure, I can do that. I can throw myself off this building. And yeah, sometimes people pay the price. But you're right as far as I'm glad that no one else was hurt. But And it does add just kind of a, a very morbid coda to the, the weird life of, of Toby Hallecky that, again, I was not too terribly familiar with prior to the preparation for this episode. So thank you for turning me on to a really weird and dark corner of cinematic history, Mike. You hear about folks passing away during the production of films, and rarely is it in, the actor is also the stunt person. There's a reason for that. <laughs> like that's there's the reason that they don't want Arnold or so many other actors, you know, action stars doing their own stunts is because it's it's expensive for the production house and it's a massive liability. I mean, just look at what happened to Tom Cruise when he broke his ankle. It effectively derailed like two or three films because mm -hmm. they had to stop shooting. And that was again a rather mundane stunt, him jumping from building to building. And yet it derails three films and, you know, it costs them God knows how much money. Thankfully, he wasn't hurt more than that. But yeah, like you said, El Goro, it's kind of not terrible that he was the only one who passed away because you would rather not it be 30 people and him get taken out by a water tower at the same time. Yeah. Or, you know, two small children torn apart by a helicopter. Warning. On June 9th, if you are under five feet tall, weigh less than 100 pounds, have heart trouble suffer seizures or periodic blackouts you'll just have to hang on a little tighter you want to go for a ride hell yes 50 cars 24 hours it can't be done it has to be from producer jerry bruckheimer and director dominic Sinna. what do you think is more exciting having sex or stealing cars nicholas cage angelina jolie giovanni rubisi and robert devon he's gone gone in 60 seconds Soundtrack available on Island featuring the hit single by the cult, Painted on My Heart. Painted on my heart. Gone in 60 seconds. You alright? Just drove through a wall. From Touchstone Pictures, rated R, under 17, not admitted without parents. So I haven't seen Gone in 60 Seconds, the remake, since it came out. I don't even think I saw it theatrically. I think I saw it on cable the first time or rented it on VHS or DVD. 
I have to say, because I read the script uh, before it came out, and that script is hot garbage. Um, so <laughs> watching the actual film again, I was like, okay, I'm all right with this. Like the first time I saw it, I hated it. Then watching it again, I was just like, you know what? This isn't as bad as I thought. Now, I will say I watched the theatrical version. I know there's a director's cut out there, which is about 10 minutes more. And I did go through and I looked at what was in the director's cut versus the theatrical version. And it just felt like they added a lot more of the family stuff. Speaking of family, I didn't need it. I didn't need any of that stuff. I didn't need uh, Giovanni Rabisi to be uh, the kid brother of Nicolas Cage. I didn't need any of that kind of stuff. I just needed Nicolas Cage acting a little crazy, putting together a crew, and going going out and stealing a bunch of cars. And having fucking Delroy Lindo and Timothy Oliphant as his uh, nemesis, I thought that was great. I have a great deal of affection for the wonderful mess that is Gone in 60 Seconds, probably due to the fact it came out when I was the perfect target audience for it, because I was 15 when this movie came out. And it just seemed to me like, you know, the coolest stuff ever. And this was when uh, Nicolas Cage was riding high on his uh, slew of action movies because, you know, he'd done The Rock before this and Con Air, you know, the most improbable action guy in the world. And I swear future generations will look back on me and be like, seriously, that guy was the action guy of the 90s. But I guess he had to be there because it was totally legit to me. And then you have... The absolutely gorgeous Angelina Jolie, who I had known her from Hackers. This movie just came together for me. And to me, it was, it was hilarious. The action was good. It was my cinematic introduction to, um, Mitty Jones because it was before I'd, I'd seen stuff like, uh, Lock, Stock and Two Smoking Barrels. To me, it, it, this was just a badass movie. Watching it now, I can see a little bit of the seams in this film a little bit and not all of the j- joke lines work as well for me. Uh, uh, especially, uh, who's the member of the crew that he, he gets put with uh, uh, Vinny Jones about it? The uh, African American actor. Oh yeah, in the um, Mirror Man is what his character's name is. T T J Cross, I think it is. Yeah, his stuff was a bit grating this time around. It was like, hey, you know what worked really well? Dave Chappelle and Conair. How about we get like a Dave Chappelle, but not as funny. Which I hate that because it's clearly they were trying to cast Dave Chappelle, but they either couldn't get him or whatever. So it's like, let's just give me a Dave Chappelle type. It's like, no, no, no. you cast Dave Chappelle, the actual comedian. I, I still hold a great deal of nostalgic affection for Gone in 60 Seconds. And even though I was making fun of him earlier, I still like Christopher Eccleston hamming it up as the <laughs> British villain Raymond Kalitri. There was a reason that when he got picked up to do Doctor Who, I couldn't get into it because, like, it's like, no, he's the bad guy and gone in 60 seconds. I don't buy him as a villain. <laughs> oh, my God. Well, for me, he was always the third roommate in Shallow Grave. So I was like, okay, mm. yeah, I can I can buy this. I can buy this. <laughs> for me, he was always Destro in G.I. Joe Rise of Cobra. <laughs> You're welcome, and I'll continue to destroy any credibility that I have. But, you know, when they made that G.I. Joe movie, I was just like, you know, Vin Diesel was made to be Destro. Ah, Destro. Noble Destro, my old friend. We congratulate you on the success of your mission. Success? You dare speak to me of success, you psychotic, sibilant servant of a dolt? 
you just slap a, a, a little bit of silver makeup on that chrome dome and you are all set. He's got the voice. He's got everything to be Destro. And when they didn't do that, I was like, fuck this movie. And then they cast him as Groot and we all wondered what they were doing there. But yet that somehow worked. Well, you see, that made sense because, you know, it was like a callback to Iron Giant. He's used to playing these animated characters that don't say a lot. Uh, speaking of animated characters that don't say a lot, uh, I, on the other hand, did see this film when it came out, and I did not like it rewatching it. Uh-huh. Because it feels like a dumber version of the Italian job. <laughs> the original or the remake? The remake. I've never seen the original, but I know I need to correct that. Fast and the Furious felt like a stupider version of the Italian job. So this movie is like the stupidest version of all three. Its comedy is nowhere near honed enough to really go after it. Nicolas Cage's character is not given enough to do outside of at one point being creepy in a car with Angelina Jolie. Yeah, they have zero chemistry with each other. and It just comes off as so creepy. (laughs) Angelina Jolie does not need to be in this movie. She's not given anything to do. She looks like her, my my wife, Mike, who watched this with me, mentioned that uh, Angelina Jolie looks like her character from Girl Interrupted. I can see which that. Which she kind of, yeah. she kind of does. And, you know, she's great in Girl Interrupted, but in this, she's eye candy and that's it. And she's not even on screen enough to warrant being this film's eye candy. I'm not saying that there's, I'm not having a conversation here about eye candy right or wrong, but she's on the poster and she is in like Five scenes in this movie. Yeah, I'm pretty sure she's second build as well. It's it's kind of insane to me. I remember when I I remember thinking when I watched it the first time, she had a big part in this film, and she doesn't. And I don't know why she's in the movie because they don't give her anything to do. But my issue with this movie is it just doesn't have enough stuff with the cars in it. Like what the hell? It's a movie called Gone in sixty seconds, and there's not enough of the. Actual car stuff. Am I asking for a 40 minute long chase scene? No, I don't expect that any more than either one of you do. But I do expect you to show me things with cars. Fast and the Furious, the original that came out a year later did it. And the Italian job, which came out three years later, also did it. I don't, I don't understand. This was much more of a traditional kind of heist movie where it's all about assembling the crew, assembling the plan and then putting it into into action. And it just so happened the things that they were stealing were cars. But it is much more about the the group dynamic, you know, that whole family dynamic we see keep mentioning in regards to Fast and the Furious. Putting this in kind of historical perspective, and I never thought I'd make a historical point with a film like Gone in 60 Seconds, but it definitely did seem to kick off the kind of revival of the car exploitation film. That seeing as it came out the year before Fast and Furious, which of course would be the standard bearer for this new generation of car exploitation that has gone through a bunch of different iterations on how it, it presents itself. But I have to think with the huge box office that it pulled, it def- definitely showed that there was a market for these kind of movies with that are not as car focused as the original but still ostensibly you know are about cars and that's where you got your your fast and the furiouses that's where you got the transition into motorcycles with the excretable film torque which if you have not seen that please please just don't don't go seek out torque i'm still waiting for some people to uh revive that film in a so bad it's good way just just don't it's it's just bad man it's just not good there's going to be a tweet about that any day now you know yeah someone uh, is gonna take you to watch torque it's it's a classic (laughs) 
No, nope, El Goro it's not. is wrong. It's really not. <laughs> Bring out the director's cut of Torque. <laughs> but nevertheless, it, it, when one looks at you know the historical trends of films, the uh, early aughts and you know proceeding basically to what to whenever they stopped making Fast and the Furious movies, that that was the return of the car exploitation film. Yeah. And and what's weird is to me, if you guys can believe this, this movie has the biggest budget of all three and the least amount of car stuff of all three. <laughs> it's it's like it's completely insane to me. When I think of the Italian job remake, I think of the Mini Coopers, I think of them zipping around LA and doing all sorts of wacky shit. When I think of Gone when I thought of Gone in Sixty Seconds before I rewatched it, all I could think about was Angelina Jolie and Nick Cage. And Subsequently, after the viewing, I'm not sure what to think about. Shy McBride, it was kind of cool that he was in it. I mean, well, what it ends up being, the, the huge difference for me is that in the first movie in Halicki's original, it's him, it's his crew, and that's really about it. You get like a little bit of side characters. Like I said, there's a DJ character. There's the guys who help him out with like, you know, cleaning while Lyle Wagoner's car, those kind of things. You don't have a powerhouse actor like a Delroy Lindo after him. So you have to make room in the sequel or sorry, in this remake to give Lindo and Oliphant room to be there. And that takes away from the rest of it. It's like the, you know, it's like almost them being on screen takes the place of five car stunts, you know? And it's like, no, no, I, I'm watching this movie for the car stunts. I love Delroy. I love Timothy, but maybe don't have the police as strong of a presence. Just have it be the Nick Cage character, Memphis Reigns in this one, have him and a little bit of the rest of the crew, but make it about the cars and don't make it about Chris Frackelson. Don't make it about Delroy Lindo. Just make it about this guy who's got to steal a whole bunch of cars. I mean, I don't even know if you ever see the guy who hires Mandarin Pace again, other than the one time when they set up the thing. Because when he drives off into the sunset, he's not driving to go see you know, uh, Mr. Vilas or whatever it is to uh, give him his last car. It, we just know that that's going to happen, so we don't need all this other stuff. One, it's really funny. You 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 kind of touched on it a little bit, Mike. The original film shirks bringing in big name talent a because they couldn't afford it, and b because it is all about the cars. This movie is chock full of everybody. All of the late nineties, early two thousands kind of big hitters: Nick Cage, Angelina Jolie, Robert Duvall is in this. Because he is, uh, seemingly for no reason. Mike, I don't know if you were pleasantly surprised or not when we talked about the movie, I think it was last week or the week before, off podcast. We were trying to remember who possibly was the villain of the film. And you posited that it would probably be Will Patton, given Will Patton is the villain in most things that he's cast in. <laughs> I was shocked it was Christopher Eccleston because he's terrible in this movie. Uh, he's really bad. He's, he's not intimidating. <laughs> no, he's not even. He's not even the kind of threat that his character in this film is being written as, which is the rich guy who can do anything because he's rich. He's not even that. He's just like this goofy dickhead with a terrible wig on, by the way. I mean, on top of everything else, we all know Chris Eccleston is a bald man almost all the time, at least in most things. Not older stuff, but more recent stuff. He has very close cropped hair and he looks ridiculous. But ultimately, it comes back to giving other things spotlights that, like you said, Mike, the police, 
giving Chris Eccleston time, giving Nick Cage's time with his brother, their relationship, quote unquote, I, you left me and now I was on my own. Cut this shit all out. The original movie did. We don't, it, this movie doesn't need it. It really doesn't. Yeah, I could have cared less about their whole relationship that they had. And I have to say, you know, I was making fun of Scott Rosenberg earlier, and the script uh, that I read of this is incredibly different from what we ended up with. There are all of these dream sequences in the script where it's what? Memphis reliving his past and stealing cars and doing all this stuff. And so we, we start the movie with Memphis, and he really is much more the main character, because in this one, he doesn't show up for a little bit. And then it's like, oh, oh, this is a Nick Cage movie. Okay, all right. And yeah, he's got some presence here, but some of these other characters, like you said, Sway, the Angelina Jolie character, I think Chai McBride has more lines than she does. Would, would not be surprised. I feel like there's a whole version of this movie, even the director's cut. There's a version of this movie where it's like more Angelina Jolie stuff. Because why are you? It's not like she was not a known quantity in 2000. She very much was. And I don't understand casting her in this film. As much as I'm not personally not a fan of her acting uh, and the th- the, her roles, I know she's a great actress. She could have carried this movie more than most of the actors in this film could have. I would go as far as to say she's probably as good of an actor as Nick Cage is. And you give her three lines? Guys, come on. Like, that's... It's just... It's insane to me, frankly. Because given the trajectory of all these people's careers now, you you watch a movie with Angelina Jolie in it, and she's not doing much of anything. You're wondering, what were those directors thinking? It's so fun. Dominic Sena, who directed this, his career is fantastic. I mean, he did start off in music videos. He directed California, which I like a lot. And that's one of the few movies where I can really tolerate. Is that Juliette Lewis's? Because I don't tend to like her too much in anything. But I love Duchovny, and I really love Michelle Forbes, so I was very happy with that movie. He would go on from this, from Gone in 60 Seconds, to make Swordfish. which Of course he would. Which is the movie that almost got me beat up. <laughs> what? <laughs> well, they they spend all the movie trying to save Halle Berry. Like, that's the thing. Yes. It's like, you know, we're going to have the boy from Oz is going to save Halle Berry, and when... Travolta shoots her towards the end of the movie. I laughed because I thought it was so funny (laughs) that we spent all this time trying to save her and she just gets dispatched so quickly. And the guys that sat in front of me were not very happy that I laughed. Oh, no. (laughs) To the point of, (laughs) you better hope she survives. (laughs) God damn. Can you imagine, Mike, if you had gotten your ass beat because of Swordfish? I would love it. Yeah, I was going to say, you know, again, I have a a curious soft spot for Swordfish that's probably the same size and shape as my curious soft spot for uh, uh, Gone in 60 Seconds. And I will not deny that that soft spot may be somewhere in my brain, but... Yeah, I don't think it's a it's a movie worth getting in a fight over. In fact, the only fights I've ever had in a movie theater had to do with people pinging out their cell phone. But uh, no, you really don't want to get your ass kicked <laughs> based upon your response to Swordfish. No, not one huge guffaw that I let let out in the theater. <laughs> <laughs> a film that I, I think is going to be lost to time until, I don't know, given up 10 more years and somebody's going to write a retrospective about Swordfish as a lost classic. <laughs> 
Well, and then you have Season of the Witch, which is the last film that he worked on, which is another Nick Cage joint. Well, I so, saw that in the theater. <laughs> did you fight anyone in the theater? Because did if you not. didn't, you should have. <laughs> <laughs> I was mostly just enjoying the fact that Ron Perlman was getting a paycheck. Well, yeah, I, I pretty much watched it for Ron Perlman, and I can barely remember that one. I get that one, Seventh Son, and The Last Witch Hunter all mixed up in my head. I could not tell you what happens in which movie. Yeah, I, I, I really can't remember too much about it. I've no, I know I've seen it, but there's just nothing. It, it, it leaves nothing in there. It is one of those films that reminds me that in the like early aughts, Hollywood was really obsessed with and still is filming in Hungary. Mm-hmm. And that's what I think of when I think of Season of the Witch is like, man, this film looks like it was filmed in Eastern Europe, whatever the cheapest places they could go to. Is it Croatia today or Hungary tomorrow? Or is it, you know, I, I think that's not a bad thing given the grand scale of these films, but... It's also when you watch cheap movies, you can tell that they're going there, too, because it is still cheap. Well, I'm curious if somebody had to sit down and write out the plot synopsis of Season of the Witch. Could we do it if someone was giving us a blowjob at the same time? <laughs> what? Well, that's that's, <laughs> that's your swordfish. That's reference. the only thing I remember from swordfish <laughs> other than Halle Berry getting shot is when they make Hugh Jackman hack something and have a woman sucking him off at the same time to make sure that he's the hacker that he says he is. It feels like when you have an actor with the last name of Jackman, you should have had him jerking <laughs> off instead. <laughs> <laughs> we need you to break into Pornhub. <laughs> yeah, we need you to Jackman. Seriously. <laughs> uh, utilizing the great Hollywood tradition of, well, you know, he's hacking hard because he's typing faster. Oh, yeah. It's true. It is funny, though, when we look at, because like you mentioned, El Goro, the, this Gone in 60 Seconds movie set off this car exploitation rebirth. It is really funny how there's only one left. A- anything else that has tried, be it, um, we can name, like you named Torque, that is one of them. Uh, um, Transporter un- could fit into that category. Yep. Yep. Uh, the remake of Death for, Wish 2000. Need for Speed. Yep, Need for Speed. With, uh, what, what? The uh, the guy from Breaking Bad. Yep. Aaron Paul. Even he, Aaron Paul couldn't save it. It's so funny. You're talking about these movies, and I'm just like, okay, yeah, Statham was in that. Okay, Statham was in that one, too. <laughs> he sure was. And then eventually, he's just like, you know what? Fuck it. I'm going to join up with the Fast and the Furious. <laughs> yep. I, look, I have a soft spot in my heart for Transporter. That movie's awesome. I don't know if it still is, but that scene where Jason Statham kicks in the door is still cool as fuck. <laughs> I mean, at least in my head theater, it's still super cool. But yeah, to your point, Mike, I mean, now just Jason Statham's in Fast and Furious, right? Yeah, I mean, he is yeah. one of Hobbs and or Shaw. Those Fast and Furious movies are kind of like the MCU at this point. They're just like bringing in everything that was disparate in their universe. Yep. And then starting to spread them out with like Hobbs and Shaw now. And I'm sure there's going to be another spinoff. There'll probably be a sequel to that one as well. Well, anything to keep The Rock and Vin Diesel apart, apparently. Yeah. Um, (laughs) Who would have thought that Vin Diesel would be the guy who shows up on set on time? Not me. Just kidding. He works with Disney. Of course he is. Not throwing shade at The Rock, but 
do we know whose franchise it is? And it's not Dwayne The Rock Johnson's franchise. Uh, I think in his estimation, anything he shows up is his <laughs> franchise. Right. Shaw is his franchise, that's for sure. I will but, say yes. he definitely made that sequel to uh, G.I. Joe a lot better. 100% agree. You know what? Uh, he is the last of his breed in terms of kind of old school charismatic action stars. So we have to give him props for that. Give him a wide berth because, uh, well, he has very wide shoulders. Yeah, he's a big man. You don't want to mess with yeah. him. No. No, God, no. <laughs> I'm still waiting for the rundown too, myself. Right? Me too. <laughs> Me too. That And rundown came out, what, 2003? Uh, earlier than that, I think. I think that was, it probably came out around the same time as Gone in 60 Seconds. <laughs> and Walking Tall. Yeah. See, I liked Walking Tall was good too. What's up with that? The remake. Look. Yeah, what we're, I think what would have benefited from Gone in 60 Seconds is if just Dwayne The Rock Johnson had been in it. But we had Vinnie Jones instead, so, and I, I still appreciate Vinnie Jones showing up in that, and the gag of him being British at the end. The rundown was, it was 2003. I thought it was earlier. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah, I thought it was earlier, too. And I think he is still The Rock at that point. Yes. Yeah, he was He's still going Dwayne by that. The Rock Johnson. Right. Like he is now. Or is he just Dwayne Johnson? He now? might just, He's just be Dwayne, Dwayne Johnson, Johnson now. Yeah, yeah. It was a yeah, transition. He, dropped, he <laughs> dropped the rock a long, uh, long while back. Yeah, I miss Dwayne the Rock Johnson of or the Rock of the Scorpion King and Mummy Returns fame. Yeah, oh, God. <laughs> the plastic Dwayne the Rock Johnson. Mm-hmm. Yes. Oh yeah, the oh. action figure from the film of Mummy Returns that looks better than the film version of him More does. Realistic, yes, that one. yes. But you know what? To that point, I will say that you know we're we're kind of talking about the the lack of cars present in Gone in sixty seconds. For the most part, though, and I will give the film props to this coming out as it did. There's only one obvious shot of CG in the majority of the car chases, and that's the jump at the end. But the rest of it was done largely practically. I like how that's all they took from the original film yeah, was the, the jump. big jump at the end. <laughs> that's, that's all they could be bothered to take from the original film was stealing cars and a big jump. And luckily they did bring back that heroine. I thought that was smart. And also they did the twist on the whole uh, exotic pet in the car, except this time it was a big it was a big snake. Tiger was better. Uh, 100% the tiger was better, though. It feels weird that they decided to go small on that element. You'd figure that they would try to find a way to, you know, ramp it up since it's the bigger, uh, more budgeted sequel. Have two tigers in the car. And you know what really makes me laugh when we're talking about all of these films at the same time in the same span of years? The Italian Job remake, I would actually go as far as to say it's a better remake of Gone in 60 Seconds from, like, the interaction of the characters than that film is because they essentially recast all the characters from Gone in 60 Seconds in the Italian job and they're all much more charismatic and they're all given much more to do. And it's super because like you have the British guy played by Jason Statham. You have the fast talking, I guess, African-American character in Moe's Def and, and the gentleman in Gone in 60 Seconds case. You have the uh, the old timer with Donald Sutherland. I guess he, he does he die at the beginning of the movie, though? I'm yeah, pretty sure he I think so. Yeah. They have a villain in Edward Norton, so who's one of the people that turns on them? And it's like it's kind it's it kind of just feels like they fixed all the problems that this film had with the cast. At least, I mean, they can't fix this car's film's car. Yeah, but it has Mark Wahlberg in it, so that feels like a big uh, pullback. But at least they have Charlize Theron, and she has a role. And like, um, she does. Also Charlize. true. Yeah. <laughs> 
Yeah. I mean, that's, that's the, that is the thing I remember about Italian job. I don't remember the car stuff, but I remember the interactions with the cast. Uh And in a movie like this, when it's not completely chock full of car stuff, that's all we have left to talk about is how the cast interacts with each other. And in Gone in 60 Seconds, they just don't have a lot of chemistry. It's, it's a shame because we all know that they're all very talented actors. Sure. I did appreciate seeing uh, Michael Pena show up for just a hot second in the remake. Holy oh god, holy yeah. Cow. As, as one of the uh, one of the gang members when he showed up I was like, "Wait, what?" Yeah. Oh shit, that is Michael Pena. Given the great name of Ignacio. And then Ari Gross has a few second cameo in there. I was like, "Is that Ari? Oh, yeah, it is." And then Grace Sabrinsky showing up for what? One scene? I was like, yeah. Okay, I really thought that the brother stuff would have more play with the mother and all this, but nope. I'm not that I mind it. Not that I mind it. We also had two Duvalls in the movie that were not related. James and Robert. <laughs> and you have Timothy Oliphant in this film given nothing to do, which again, uh there's so many people in this movie that are so good. And I yeah. like I just it boggles my mind that someone didn't look at this cast and go Let's punch up the dialogue. Let's make sure it's good. Let's yeah, make sure that these characters have interesting things to say to each other. In fairness to Timothy Oliphant, that was early in his career before he had really sort of established himself. I mean, he had done, obviously, stuff before that, but it was really before he became truly Timothy Oliphant. He could have played the villain in this movie. He was uh, convincing enough as the villain in Scream 3. Or and he has that, a l- four? <laughs> oh, God, yeah, he was the bad guy. In yeah, he was. Four. He was. <laughs> Yippee-ki-yay, mother blam! I mean, oh, fucker, in the, in the normal version, the edited version, he says, fuck when the gun goes off. Wow. Yeah, yeah. God, boy. It is it is weird seeing a movie from 2000 and knowing where everyone ends up 20 years later. Because some people are much better off. And some people are, I don't know what we would consider Nicolas Cage. He's a man who acts. You know what? He's continuing his career. Exactly. <laughs> he has found a new life as being in insane rage cage, and the internet loves him before for that. So you know what? Let him have it. At, at, at least he's not making bad action movies like uh, Liam Neeson. Yeah, but he fe- he fed into it on purpose, right? True. It's intentional. I think yeah. so. I think a lot of it is, yeah. Yeah, I mean, he's not always, a bad thing. He's always had that crazy streak to him. He just happened to work a lot of times work with directors that knew how to rein him in. Because in, in throughout his career, you could always tell the ones where the films either A, he's invested in, or B, has a director that knows how to direct his energies appropriately. Oh, yeah. I mean, look at Bad Lieutenant, Port of Call, New Orleans. I mean, All right. he's crazy, but he's reined in at the same time. It's and in some cases it works really really well and then of course there's the entire slew of movies he made because he had a tremendously huge tax bill but we try not to mention those. I don't know what you're talking about USS Indianapolis Men of Courage or my personal favorite as I'm sure is Mike's Left Behind. Oh, oh god. <laughs> Somehow worse than the original movie and that movie had Kirk Cameron in it. But uh, hey, Rayford Steele meet Memphis Reigns. <laughs> it's and and the sad thing is is nick cage would go on to make better movies with cars drive angry oh god yeah i love drive angry i love even those ghost rider movies have more car stuff going on than this movie does i try not to acknowledge those ghost rider movies in my opinion the best ghost rider movie he made was drive angry i will agree with that that's fair yeah yeah Yeah, that movie's so fucking good so good 
It's sad because Spirit of Vengeance could have been stupid fun. Oh, yeah. Really and it ends up just being stupid. Yeah. yeah. When I heard that Neville Dean was directing that, I was like, okay, great. I mean, speaking of, of Statham, those crank movies are fucking incredible. And then I was like, okay, cool. Yeah, put put Cage with those guys. That'll be wonderful. Oh, nope. It wasn't. Nope. nope. <laughs> and they even made Gamer, and everybody loves that movie. I didn't mind it. I liked it a I lot better than Surrogates. <laughs> Yeah, I will yeah, say I, the, only thing, the thing I liked about Gamer the most was that it had Michael C. Hall in it, not playing Dexter, oh, God. which True. is very rare given his career. He's like done Dexter and like a bunch of stuff on stage. It's it, it's been very like it's been very weird. Yeah, but he did Cold in July, which I absolutely love. Oh, my Cold in July is amazing. I haven't Thank seen God that. Someone else sings the praises oh, of should. that film. Oh, Don Cold. Johnson, uh, Michael C. Hall and uh, Sam Shepard. Yep. And uh, a young Wyatt Russell. Oh, yeah. Yeah, he's made that guy. I'm trying to remember who did the music for it. Uh, Uh, It was a combination, but one of the uh, uh, some of the tracks were done by a a synthwave collective, I think, called Dynatron. It's it's really good. I'm actually surprised you've never seen it, Mike. It's really good. Okay, cool. I will have to check it out. And it's based off of a Joe R. Lansdale novel. Yes, it is. It's even better. Nice. So gone in 60 seconds. uh. (laughs) Anything else we want to talk about that one? Uh, not really. Okay. I wish Nick Cage was better, and that's a weird thing for me to say. That's it. It's actually I have one other question. How do you guys feel? Because this is the only time I've ever had a chance to talk about him as an actor. How do y'all feel about Giovanni Ribisi? Hit or miss, but when he hits, he hits incredibly hard. Um, I've never really been a big fan. I'm trying to think of where I might have liked him at. I was kind of glad when he faded a little bit because for a while there it felt like he was in everything. He was in a really embarrassing, let's call it developmentally delayed exploitation film. Uh, I want to say him and Juliet Lewis. Oh man. What is the name of that? Two thing? of your favorites. It would sound like the other sister from 1999, a Gary Marshall film. They are two, Special needs people. Uh, it's basically kind of like that Sean. Oh God. What was that one? Like normal people from the seventies. It was almost a remake of that. So I, I, this is the second time I've seen him in like two weeks. Cause I just watched for the first time saving private Ryan. Oh, right. Oh, for the first time. Wow. Yeah. For the first time, uh, which I actually, I immensely liked him in saving private Ryan. Yeah. And that's what, again, one of the ones where I thought he really hit. Oh yeah. He, I, I'm with you, but. I would be inclined to agree with you, both of y'all. I just, he's, everything I've seen him in, aside from like two or three things, have been just like, okay. Like, especially something like Avatar, where he plays like the one of the main villains of the film. It's just like, yeah, this where they, guy? They're, they're trying to turn him into Paul Reiser from Aliens and doesn't quite work. Yeah. I was like, this guy? This is the guy you're going yeah, with? Yeah, the Lord this- of Unobtainium. Actually, the thing you know what the thing I remember him from the most, and this is the thing that has stuck with me, is the weirdo character he plays in Flight of the Phoenix. Mm-hmm. Okay, I've seen that one once. Probably leave it at one. Yeah, <laughs> but it just he showed up in this movie, and I again, I just I didn't understand his uh, the appeal at the time because he just he's not given much to do, and he's supposed to play Nick Cage's brother and. They have zero chemistry. Well, I so want to thank you guys for coming on this show. Um, Chris and El Goro. Chris, what is happening in your world, sir? 
Right now, over at the Culture Cast, we are actually talking about Indian cinema films this month. Not Bollywood. Bollywood is a little too specific. If you come listen to the podcast, you'll find out why. But you can find out more about that podcast at culturecast.com. You can follow me on Twitter at Christmas Claus, and you can actually check out my website. Mike, you're going to enjoy this. My Linktree website, cstashu.com. Wow. You were, you were making fun of Linktree, so I went and made <laughs> I went and made one. <laughs> I like how what I make fun of is what you glom onto. I like it. No, I didn't glom onto it on purpose. I just made one because it seemed like the right thing to do given how many podcasts I work on. I was instead of def- instead of sending them to eight different links, just send them to one page with all the links on it. And Algora K Ace. At the time that this episode will drop, I should be deep into my month of animation, where I devote the entire month to discussing animated films. Uh, got some interesting things lined up, including some uh, good anime with a Satoshi Kon double feature. And I think at the time that this episode drops, uh, the most recent one will be discussion of the two early animated Tolkien films, the 1977 version of The Hobbit and the 1978 Lord of the Rings. So definitely excited to be talking about those. Things we might be talking about soon. There you go. We do a podcast about Rankin and Bass, and they were behind Mm -hmm. that first Hobbit movie, and then also The Return of the King. So I figure we have to watch the Bakshi to get the the story in between there. But uh, yeah, I mean, it's not it's not like we don't know the story, but we should watch it anyways. And then just to be sure, let's watch the Jackson trilogy again. right? Right, the extended versions, of course. Yes, just to make sure that we know everything. The only thing I recall from the uh, the Lord of the Rings was just how unsettling the rotoscoping was for a young child watching it. So we'll see how that plays to an adult's eyes. Yeah, the rotoscoping, it, you're right. It, it's very upsetting. When I was a young kid watching it, I'd be like, why are they moving so weird? It, I just didn't get it at all. So we'll see how that goes. And if you want to check that out, uh, just do a search for Talk Without Rhythm. You can check us out on the main website, TWORpodcast.blogspot.com, or uh, reach me out on Twitter, at TWORpodcast. Well, thank you again, guys, for being on the show. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Please head on over to the website, projectionboothpodcast.com, where you can find out more about today's episode. You'll also find a link over to Patreon, where you can make a donation to the show. Every donation we get helps the Projection Booth take over the world.
Feel the 